0: and I'm just, I really am delighted that I'm doing this because uh, the 12 and 12 says that step one is the only step I have to take in its entirety. And uh, and really, I only have to take the first part of step one in its entirety. And one of the things that uh, I didn't get to, I got to know, Chuck just a tiny little bit uh, before he died. Dave and I had moved to Southern California, and I got to be with him because uh, our sponsors were people who were always hanging around Chuck. And so I got to be at his side for a few times before he died. And one of the things that Chuck said that I always loved, and he also says it in a new pair of glasses, is life is just a sequence of surrenders. But we have to have the first one before we can have the second or the third. And the first surrender that I had to make was a surrender to alcohol. And... Uh, and I just, I want to talk about that because one of the things that I want to say is, is that when I came to the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, everybody seemed to be from alcoholic parents or alcoholic somebody. I do not come from alcoholic parents. In fact, the only person in my family who drank was my grandfather. And I can assure you from my recollection, he never drank like I drank. He just had some beer now and then. But nobody in my family drank. Because now when I'm in Georgia, this is no problem. But Southern California and some of the places I lived, they didn't quite get it. And You guys get it. I was raised Southern Baptist. And I'm telling you, they say thou shalt not drink. And my parents didn't. Now, I have a theory. I don't know if this theory will, you know, I'll never be able to prove it because my father was very young when he died. He died at age 60. But, so I'll never be able to prove that theory. But I believe if my dad had taken a drink of alcohol, he'd have been an alcoholic because I will guarantee you he was restless, irritable, and discontent. And he was full of rage. And he would go into fits of rage that were absolutely... I know that he was totally and completely powerless over those rages. I didn't know it then because I got to experience that myself. I didn't know it then. I know it today. And my parents were two abused children. And what happened was, is they were just like an alcoholic and an Al-Anon, and they found each other. And what happened is, is my parents had two opposite reactions to that. My father was very angry, and my mother was drawn into herself and very quiet. And I would look at my parents, like so many kids I'm sure do, and say, I'll never, ever be like you. And the thing of it is, is I became exactly like both of my parents. I say that I came into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous an angry wimp. I was full of rage, and I could not stand up to people. I would, What I would do is I would swallow my anger in front of people, and then I would go home, and I would take my anger and rage out on my two little boys and i would take it out on my husband but my husband was an air, was a sack pilot in the air force and he was gone all the time so the people who the, who received my anger all the time was my two little boys they were the ones who were affected by my alcoholism uh, I used to, uh, live in Southern California, and I lived in Orange County, and this will mean nothing to people in Georgia, but I lived in, but there are some Californians here, but I lived in Orange County, and I worked in El Segundo. Now, that's only 22 miles, but that is an hour and a half drive every morning. That was the commute that I made to work. And I made that commute on the way home. And that's all due to traffic. And you guys live in Atlanta, so you understand that. You have a ton of traffic too. So what happened is I used to listen to this psychologist on the radio on a talk show. And this psychologist said something to me that I believe is true for me. And she said, we get to act out our parents' pathology so we learn to forgive them. And that's what I had to do. I learned to forgive my parents because one of the things that I did is I did everything I hated about them. I did. The other thing is, is that they didn't do that much bad. But if you're an alcoholic like I'm an alcoholic, when I was a little girl, there was a song out there called Accentuate the Positive, Eliminate the Negative. Anybody remember that song? Well, I'm the kind of alcoholic that accentuates the negative and eliminates the positive. (laughs) And so all I could see was the things they did wrong. And I am so grateful to the Rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous because I have been shown how wonderful my parents were. And not only did I have parents who loved me, my parents wanted to give me everything they could. Now, I'm 73 years old. Not many 73-year-old people, mothers worked, but my mother worked. I was a latchkey kid before it was ever popular, but she worked. And what the reason that she did that is my dad only had a ninth grade education, so he was a contractor. He built houses. And my mother was a nurse, and she worked. And they had one reason for what they did, and that was so they could give me everything they didn't have. That's how much they loved me. They wanted to give, they gave me dancing lessons, gymnastic lessons. My mother would sit up all night long making dancing costumes, making me clothes, anything so I could have everything that they didn't have when they were growing up. And not only did I have all that love, but I'm an only child. So everything was given to me. Now, I have no idea. You know, I'll, I'm not here to explain my background. I'm just here to give you some facts. But the thing is about it is, all I know is, is I had that love. I know today, because after coming to the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, I love that. I see that. But I'm telling you, before getting here, I would have told you, that nobody loves me. Yet I was a person who all my life was shown love and I was cherished, but I never could feel it. And I believe, I don't know if it was from, you know, coming out of the chute, I don't know. All I know (laughs) is that I was so spiritually ill and so, and the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous says that we are suffering from a spiritual malady. And the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous says that if we are suffering from a spiritual malady, nothing is enough. You can't love me enough. You can't give me enough. You can't do enough. There simply is not enough for a person like me. And I remember sitting in treatment. And I know a lot of times people say, "Oh, there weren't treatment centers when I got sober." But I'll tell you what, there were treatment centers when I got sober. I went through 3 of them. I mean, I know there were treatment centers. And uh I could I managed to find them. Bob Darrell managed to find them. We found them. <laughs> but what happened is is that um I would sit in group, and it's much like that the way it is today, just like it was then, and they'd sit in group, and everybody would start sharing these horrible things that had happened to little boys and girls. And I would, I'd look at them, and I'd think, well, I can understand why you're an alcoholic. I mean, look at all these things that happened to you. But none of those things had happened to me. And I couldn't understand why I was an alcoholic. I couldn't get it. And then on the other hand, I couldn't understand. Everybody was talking about my mom was an alcoholic, my dad was an alcoholic, all of these things, and I kept thinking, well, my parents are an alcoholic. And I love Clancy was talking last night. He says, what what keeps an alcoholic from getting sober? The one thing, my case is different. It's not that, you know, well, I was loved. I'm seeing that now. I didn't get it then, but I'm seeing that. And then they would talk about your mom or your dad being alcoholic, and I would say, well, my mom or dad are not alcoholic. You know, how come I'm an alcoholic? And, you know, and I I really truly believe that this disease has a genetic component because I seem to produce alcoholics. (laughs) And, you know, you listen to Bob talk Thursday night, and he and Linda really produce alcoholics. (laughs) They got three of them. So I believe that there is a genetic component. However, I can't find any alcoholism in my family. But I know that maybe there is, you know, a predisposition to alcoholism. See so we don't know all that stuff. and if you put a drink to it, you got alcoholism. If you don't, you've got a raging person who's restless, irritable and discontent. So who, do we know all those facts? I don't know. Do they matter? No. What matters is is that I'm sober today and that I can see because of the process of this program that I'm blessed. I was so blessed. And there's a wonderful Al-Anon lady that's been gone for a while, and her name was Marcy White. And Marcy White used to talk about the blessing. And she says the blessing is that that we come into life and we're given the gift of love. Now, some of us don't really get that in a way that we can understand. And we come to the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon, and there we're given the blessing, the gift of love. Well, you know what? I was one of those people who always had the gift of love. I was loved from the very beginning. And today, I am so grateful for the parents I had and the love they gave me, because it took a long time to get through that shell and open it up. But once it was open, I could see and receive all the love that my parents had given me. And so for that, I'm grateful because I had the blessing. Uh, I took a drink of alcohol when I was 18 years old. Uh, I had, um, I was an Air Force officer's wife and I had received an invitation in the mail to go to a coffee that was given by the base commander's wife. And uh, I had no idea what I had signed up for. I just married a man that I thought was just as cute as he could be in that uniform. And I just, and I tell you today, I love it because I get to fly a lot and I can sit at an airport and I see a man in a uniform and it just still does, it does it to me. I just have, I love being an American. I love the patriotism of being an American. I love that I got to have that life. I love that I got to see people serve because they loved it. I love it. I just absolutely loved it. And so all I knew was I'd married this cute little guy and he looks great in a uniform and he even looked cuter in a flight suit. And uh, so I went to this coffee and all of us little second lieutenant's wives are sitting out there and this lady begins to tell us that what we're going to have to do in order to enhance our husband's career and what, what our responsibilities are going to be as an Air Force officer's wife. And, uh, and I was horrified. I was absolutely horrified. I'm like, I can't do this. I am a hick from Texas. You know, you're going to attend the right dinner parties. You're going to go to the right dinner parties. You're going to dress appropriately. You'll wear the right length gloves, all the things that were going to happen. And I'm a hick from Texas. I don't even know where the forks and knives go. And how am I going to do this? And I was so overwhelmed with feelings of inadequacy. And that was the feeling I always had. And that's another thing that Clancy was talking about last night. When I say I had feelings of inadequacy, I never felt I was enough. I always had this feeling that I didn't fit in. When you start telling that to another alcoholic, they just, oh, I've never heard anybody talk about things like that. But those were the kind of feelings that I had. And what would ha- and I didn't know how I was going to ever. These women were educated and sophisticated. I knew they were, and I was none of those things. So what I did is they had a luncheon, and uh, I went to that luncheon, and I took a drink of alcohol. All of these women were taken. It was a fountain. It wasn't even champagne. It was sherry. And there was this fountain, and they had all these glasses lined up, and everybody would pick up a glass and tick their glass in front of the fountain. And uh, they were doing it, so I did it. And uh, that day I had no idea that I had put something inside of me that would light up a disease called alcoholism. I had no idea that that would happen for me. All I knew was, as I took that drink of alcohol, and I think the really funny thing is, is that probably everybody doesn't have this, but i it seems like most people do. I didn't know that I was going to be speaking in 2013 at Woodstock of the South and would need to remember my first drink. I didn't know that. But you know what? I remember that drink as if it were Yesterday. That I when I took that drink, I remember what it felt like. I remember how warm it was, and that when it went down, what seemed to happen was, is I just had this anxiety. I don't know if anybody else are anxious. I was an anxious alcoholic, and I had this anxiety, and it just seemed like about a couple of glasses of that, and my gosh, that just was gone. Felt, and then all of a sudden it felt like I could breathe. Just take a breath. And then it, these women were talking, and I seemed to be able to smile and nod and laugh in the right places. So I just want to tell you that's what alcohol did for me. And it would turn, as all people who have the disease of alcoholism, it will turn. What ended up happening is I ended up having two sons and we ended up being stationed in a place called Loring Air Force Base, Maine, which is at the very, very tippy top of Maine. Really cold there. It's a very, very isolated duty station. One of the things that I experienced in the Air Force was because my husband was in the Strategic Air Command, we were always in isolated places. But we were always in the United States. But it was, you know, Grand Forks, uh, Plattsburgh, New York, Loring Air Force Base, Maine, places like that. And uh, what happened was is I had these two little boys. I have no clue how to be a parent I don't know I'm suffering from a disease called alcoholism. I don't know that what's wrong with me is I'm selfish and self-centered. And when these babies cry all night and they're colicky and all these things, I am so selfish and self-centered. I think they're doing it to me. That's how I feel. I think they're doing it to me. And what ends up happening for me is I end up going to an Air Force doctor and he says, take these. Take these. And from 1962 until 1977, when I entered the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, I took Librium and Valium and Seconol and Secanol Nem- and uh, and, Nemutol and drank alcohol. And I'm here to tell you, if you do that, you're not an active alcoholic. I was never, I was never a party girl. <laughs> I always said that I wanted one of these. You know, you come to Alcoholics Anonymous, and you don't know that just being a drunk laying around uh, and the hority of me And see, like I want all the funny stories. I have a, like I sponsor a woman who had an affair with a one-legged preacher. You know, I, I want stuff like that. And But I, here I am. I don't have any of that. What I, I come here with a bucket of shame. And I didn't have a lot of fun with my drinking. Because I don't know if anybody can remember what it's like to control your drinking. You know, have to be at a function with the Air Force and it is very, it is not acceptable behavior for an Air Force officer's wife to be drunk and disorderly. So what I would do is I would sit with a drink, try to sip it, and just have that stuff going inside of me because I had the phenomena of craving. And it was going on and it was eating me alive. And I was just having to sit there through this until I could get home and just throw that bottle up and just ease that pain. But what happened in the meantime is I was left with these two little boys and my husband was gone, and he was gone for years at a time, and I was left with these two little boys. And what happened for me is I became a child abuser. I was a child abuser in every way. The disease of alcoholism took me to a place where I harmed my children. I harmed them physically, I harmed them by hitting them, pulling their hair. I harmed them emotionally by screaming names at them. And I I harmed them spiritually by saying, I used to say things to my youngest son, if you were first, you would have been last because he was so much trouble. And screaming and yelling and carrying on with my children until they were absolutely too terrified little boys because they had this mother. And what would happen is is that i had a I had two sons, one was a musician and one was an athlete and the musician uh and the and the athlete they'd have games and and the and then the other one would have concerts, and I'd say to my children, "I promise you I'll be there, I promise you and what would happen is is I'd take a drink of alcohol, and I couldn't get there. And these two little faces would come back and they'd be standing at the end of the sofa. And they would look at me and they would say, you promised, you promised you'd be there. And I would start raging at these two little boys. And I would say things like, what's wrong with you? Can't you see I'm sick? What's the matter with you? You're so selfish you don't even know I'm sick. And then they would feel ashamed because they wanted their mother to be somewhere and see them perform. That's what the disease of alcoholism does. That's what the powerlessness is. And I'm here to tell you, I loved my sons. I loved them. But I couldn't because of a disease called alcoholism. I was totally and completely powerless to take care of them. What happens for me in step one is I have a car wreck, and that car wreck brought me to treatment for the first time. And I entered a detox center, and uh, it was a seven-day detox center. And what happened was, I want you to know, when I entered that detox center, I did not even know another alcoholic. I didn't even know an alcoholic. I didn't know any alcoholics in the Air Force. Nobody, Nobody was like me. Today, I still don't know anybody. None of them are here. None of them, I guess, need to be. I didn't know another alcoholic. I'd seen the days of wine and roses, and I'll cry tomorrow, but that didn't mean anything to me. And I entered this treatment center, and I mean, I'd listen. These were some pretty low-bottom drunks. They were, you know, it was a detox center. It was a county detox center, and uh, and I had had a car wreck, and my husband had said, "There's a treatment center not far from our house," so I went in there, and uh, and then we we'd sit up all night telling these these war stories. And uh, I'll tell you one thing. Those who know me know that this is not true today. I didn't even say the F word when I came to treatment. Well, I've learned really good. I can do it good. (laughs) Maury's shaking her hand. I slung it at her yesterday. (laughs) But it's like I didn't even, I mean, that is how naive my life was. But in here I was with this secret life of abusing my children because they absolutely got on my nerves so bad. I could not handle these kids. They made me crazy. And uh, and we'd sit up all night telling these war stories. And, oh, my God, I loved them. I loved them. But they, all they did is just to reaffirm that my case was different. This isn't me. I don't do this. Oh, my God, these people are criminals talk about a criminal I'm the one that should have been in jail I'm the one that shouldn't have her children I'm the one who should have been locked up and it was absolutely criminal what I did I'm the one that should have been but see it didn't look the same for whatever reason and then I got sober and while I was in that treatment center, I had a jitter-house romance, you know, where sick falls in love with sick. <laughs> and uh, we went off for 58 days. And I was 12-stepped and brought back into that treatment center. And I was more dead than alive. I had been beaten up and numerous and sundry other things. And uh, it wasn't so fun anymore that time. I didn't like the stories. I'd gotten to experience some things that I'd never experienced in my life. I didn't know that people treated other people like that. I'd never been hit in my life. My parents never hit me. I hit my children. My parents never hit me. And I had experienced things I'd never experienced before. And and I knew. I love what Clancy talks about when he talks about the disease of alcoholism. He talks about sobriety is the problem. And you see, I didn't know, but that was what was the problem. I knew, all I knew is, I didn't know it was the disease of alcoholism till much later, but all I knew was I can't live sober. I can't live with me sober. I can't. I can't stand the mother I've become and the daughter I've become and the wife I've become. I can't stand who I've become. And uh, that seven days was up, and when that seven days was up, I got a bottle of scotch, and I got a bottle of allium and I checked into a motel. We are people who have been given the gift of grace. There's not anybody here that ought to be here. None of us should be here. Talk about a second chance that Sonia sang about today. Talk about a second chance. Sharon talks about seconds and inches talk about seconds and inches those are the things that we you know that we're we're here because of all those things the gift of grace all of us have some angel in our life that gets us to the rooms of alcoholics anonymous it might be in a really strange kind of way but they get us here it's amazing and what happened for me is a woman i worked with she she had she said something came over her that day and she drove around until she found my car parked outside this motel and i had i had just shut the door it hadn't latched and she pushed it open and on that day that was april the 8th of 1977 i was pronounced dead on arrival in a hospital in bedford texas i am here by divine intervention i had a piece of paper i carried for many years that said I was dead on arrival. These are the things that happen to us as alcoholics. And what happens, I believe the gift of grace that happens to us, is God breathed life back into me. And all of those things are miracles. And, and one of the things that I know is, is that I was not in touch with the enormity of that miracle for a very long time. I simply did not get it. I didn't get the gift for a very long time. But the powerlessness, I was so powerless over alcohol that the thing that I loved the most in the world, which was my two sons, I absolutely harmed and robbed from them. The gift of safety, security, all of the things that any little child is supposed to have. I robbed from them. And thank God I had a sponsor who did not give me watered down AA. He didn't, when I got through reading my fifth step, he didn't say to me, Polly, you harmed your children. He looked at me and he says, You're a child abuser. And you don't even have the right to have those children. And you're going to go make amends to them. For what you've done. Thank God for that. Because I needed to be, I needed to look at my demons. I needed to be faced with my demons. I needed to see the unmanageability of my life. I needed to see the powerlessness and the unmanageability of my life. I was absolutely powerless over alcohol, and my life was so unmanageable that I had taken this disease and harmed my sons. And I was faced with that. I ended up... Um, Uh, being, when you try to commit suicide, I ended up in a, uh, I got on one of those 5150s, 72 hour holes. They were still going on in 1977. And I got court committed to a treatment center, uh, to a psychiatric unit. Uh, for 72 hours, which was enough time for my husband to obtain a court order from a Fort Worth judge that I was a detriment to myself and others, and I was court committed to a treatment center in Dallas, Texas. And I entered that treatment center on April the 11th of 1977. And, uh, some of us are sicker than others, and I stayed in that treatment center for six weeks. And by God's grace in a program called Alcoholics Anonymous, I haven't had a drink since April the eleventh of nineteen seventy seven and for that I am eternally I am eternally grateful. Uh, step two is I came to believe in a power greater than myself that could restore me to sanity and uh, I'm here to tell you i I came into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous with that that Southern Baptist God. And all I could think about with that Southern Baptist God was I'm sitting there and they're telling me, You know, that I gotta find a power greater than myself and I've gotta find a God of my understanding. And all I know about is my God of understanding is absolutely, all I can hear is these preachers screaming up, you know, they're, you're born a sinner. You're gonna burn in hell. And I'm telling you, when I'm faced with what I'm facing with, there is no doubt in my mind I'm gonna burn in hell. There's no doubt. There is no doubt in my mind that this God, this angry God that those preachers used to scream from the podium, that that angry God, I sometimes thought he's going to set me on fire right now. That's just kind of, that's the kind of, that's, I had, I was hopeless when it came to a power greater than myself or the God of my understanding. And, you know, it just said, came to believe in a power greater than myself. I was very blessed. I believed that no matter what, because I believe this this program is God's program. This is God's program. And all of us get exactly what we need when we come to this program. And what happened for me is a man was put in my life. He was a man that threw me over his shoulders out of that in that motel in Eulis, Texas, and brought me back into that treatment center. This man ended up being my sponsor. And this man had been a Monsignor priest. He had been a captain in the Navy, and he had been an only child. And his name was Frank, and he was sponsored by another Frank that would come into my life and be the finest man I ever knew, a man by the name of Frank Honeycutt. But Frank Fitzpatrick was my first AA sponsor. And I think I got exactly what I needed. Because what happened for me is Frank said, Polly, I'm a priest. And I didn't find God in the Catholic Church as a priest. I found a lot of power and a lot of ego, and I could tell a lot of people what to do. He said, but I didn't find a God of my understanding. I didn't find that. And he says, all I want you to do is I want you to just believe that I believe. And what you can do is you can hang on to the God I have. I'm going to loan him to you. Because you see, I had that same God you have. I was going to be, all I knew I was going to do is I was going to be in purgatory and that was it. And I wasn't ever going to get out of that place. Not for what I had done, how I had lied and had what I had done as a Catholic priest. I knew that that was going to happen. Just like you know that God's going to, that you have this fear. I was so afraid of God. And I can hear my mother saying, We live in a God fearing home. And you know, today I live in a God loving home. I don't fear the God of my understanding today. All I see, I don't have a, you know, I don't have a God who punishes. I no longer have this punishing God. I have this God that is totally and completely full of mercy. Absolute mercy that He would save a wretch like me. Absolute mercy is what I have today. And Frank would just say, just believe that I believe. And you know there's many days today that I can play God in my life. And I forget about that power. I will try to run the show. I will try to tell my children that are adults that I know more than they know. I will try to dictate things to the people I sponsor, especially in areas that I'm not supposed to be messing around in, like relationships, just in their business. And I'll find out that, oh my God, I am so dead wrong, so dead wrong. So what happens is is I'll continue to try to play God in my own life and in the lives of others. I forget about that power, that power that's going to return me to sanity. I forget about that power. And what happened was is I hung on to Frank, and I began to believe in that power. And I believe, I began to believe in, in Frank's God. And, uh, and then it started to come to that I made a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care. Oh, and I just loved Barbara, continued to talk about the care. What do we do when we care about something? To the care of God as I understood Him. And I didn't, you know, I didn't know if I, I didn't know how to surrender my life to this care. I didn't know how, I didn't know, I didn't understand how to surrender. I didn't know what that was about. But what happened for me is one of the things that I am so grateful for is that I didn't get intellectual AA when I came to AA. I'm so glad that I didn't get stuff that's been so... It's just been so diagnosed and dissected and everything. I got it simple. I got it simple. Frank shared with me his experience, strength, and hope. And that doesn't mean we didn't read the book and we didn't go through it, but he just shared his experience, strength, and hope. And he looked at that step. It was very clear what that step said, is that I made a decision. And the way Frank said to do it is he said, Polly, just do it like you were going to college. He says, what you do is you make a decision to go to school, and then you spend four years doing it. And he says, what we're going to do is we're going to make a decision. You're going to make a decision to turn your will and your life over to the care of God is you understanding. But what we're going to do is we're going to take the next nine steps in doing that. And when we, get, when we get to the 12th step, you will have had a spiritual awakening and you will be in the arms of your Creator. You will absolutely be in the arms of your Creator. And what happened was, is that in step three, like, why would I want to make a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God? And then we started reading about the third step in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he says, look at your life. Look at your life managed by you. You're, you know, the director, the producer, all of these things. Look at the train wreck you have by you trying to make, to try to run your life. I love what Dave says. When uh, Dave came to AA, they told him, they said, Dave, it looks to me like you'd be willing to turn your life over to anybody that would take it in the shape you're in. And that's the way it was for me. I'd be willing to turn my life over to anybody that would take it because of the train wreck that I had in my life. These steps, when I came to the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, it was, I took these steps, and I realized that I was powerless over alcohol and that my life was unmanageable. Now, I'm here to tell you, that there are many times today I'd love to tell you that you do this and it's done. That ain't ever going to happen to you again. That's not true. That's not true. I have not taken a drink of alcohol. I have not taken a drink of alcohol. And I have not taken any of them funny little tablets that I used to take. I have not done that. And I want you to know that's the only thing I haven't done. That's the only thing. My life has been unmanageable in the last 36 years, so many times I can't even tell you. And it continues to happen. Because I have, you know, I need to suit up and show up to a lot of meetings. I have the worst forgetter. I just, you know, I forget. I am going to start trying to take charge of my life and I'm going to run things. I don't know about any of you if you've been running things lately. I just want to ask you how's that working for you? You know, I mean that's because that's what I'll try to do. You know, I'm I'm just and my life is unmanageable. And I have to surrender. I almost every day at some part of the day, and I love that with you talking about that, Linda. You know, I can I can get up, do my readings, do the things that I love to read. I've got some non-AA approved literature I read, and uh, I'll get up in the morning and I'll read that, and I'll I have a I have a prayer list, and I'll start naming off the people on my prayer list, and I'll just pray and I'll sit there and you know everything's, everything's good. I have, a, I have a chair I sit in every morning and I do this stuff and I get my little puppy and he sits beside me. I used to have two little puppies on, e- on either side and I just have one little puppy and sits beside me and we pray. But then I get up. <laughs> You know, and and then it starts. And then the day starts. But I'm blessed. I'm absolutely blessed. And uh, one of the things that Clancy was talking about last night was how AA started. And it started by first first century Christianity. And that doesn't have to be Christian, because if you're not Christian, that's fine. But what first... Century Christianity is is a per, one person helping another person. It's not everybody gathering up and people preaching to you. That's not what it's about. It's about one person sharing with another person. Not even preaching. Just sharing. Just sharing their experience, strength, and hope, how they found God. That's all it is. And what happened is, is that in doing so, we have, we get to have a thing we do in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I hope all of you here have one. And it's called sponsorship. And what we do is we get to have a sponsor and we get to be sponsors. And what happens for me. As I get on with my day, and uh, I don't know if any of you are guilty about this, but I start thinking about what I have to do for the day. Nobody suffers from that more than Dave. You ought to hear me. I'm like a drill sergeant with him. You got to do this. Come on, we're running late. You should have heard me this morning. Dave, you got X number of minutes. You got X number of minutes to get ready. (laughs) I just have, you know, I'm, I'm having to whip everybody into shape and get them moving. And I got this, I got this checklist and I got to do all this stuff and I got to get it ready and I'm going to do this and we got to do that and blah, 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 blah. But then what happens is my phone rings. And it's somebody I sponsor, and it may be a call in, or it may not be a call in. It may be somebody that's needs to talk right then. We don't know. And by God's grace, and the gift of sobriety, and the gift of having worked for you know hard for a long time, uh, I'm retired today, and I don't live on much, but I don't need much. But what I get to do is I get to work with what I get to do, my passion. I get to work with women in Alcoholics Anonymous. I, there's nothing I love more than to be able to work with the women I work with. It is absolutely my passion. And what I get to do is they'll call me, and you know what? That list went. We've we've changed the day. The day is different now. And what happens is, is I'll stop, and when I'm talking to them, I'm talking about God and i'm trying to t- I'm trying to share with them what's their answer, cause it isn't me. I'm not the answer. The answer is God, it's their God, and their God of understanding, and so what we start doing is we get back, we get back to talking about God, and we get back to that sharing, one alcoholic sharing with another, and guess what all of a sudden. That I gotta do, I gotta do, I gotta do, just kind of just comes down. And it's back to that thing that I love, you know, which is how important is it? How important is it? There's nothing more important than that woman on the phone. That's what's important. A little other dinky stuff I'm gonna do, you know, clean the sink, mop the floor. That stuff matters. I guarantee you it ain't going anywhere. It's going to be there. Now, what I need to do is I need to pay attention to that phone call. And what happens is, is I haven't a clue what I do for them. I haven't a clue what I do for them. But I know what it does for me. And that it puts me back in that place that I need to be in. That place where I'm safe and protected again. And I'm not driven by the anxiety that was always there the day I came in to Alcoholics Anonymous. What happens is, is as soon as I start focusing on doing that, all of that starts to just go away. And I get the opportunity to say, you know, did you say the third step prayer today? How's your relationship with God today? Who's in charge? I've got a couple of women that are having, you know, job problems. We've had some job problems going on. And uh and I just we get back and we remember that we have a new employer and that God's in charge. It's not, you know, you that that person you're working for is not is not your employer. God's your employer. That's just your money source. That's all that is. God's just shooting the money through them. It's that it's what we talk about is I've got a new employer and that's what I have to remember. And I got to get back to that step three to see, you know, I got to make that decision again to turn my will in my life over to the care of God as I understand him. And I can go read that stuff in the third step and it talks about that I've got, you know, I've got this new employer. I've got this. I've got this. I've got this. This power working for me. Every single day. And I got this power that allows me to work with some women that call me sponsor. To me, which is the greatest honor a person can be given. Because what that is, is that person tells you their whole heart. And that is an amazing trust. An amazing trust. We're given. The book says... That we can help when nobody else can. we can help another alcoholic when nobody else can. I think God's given us an amazing job, a big job, a big job that we get to help other alcoholics. I'm so grateful that um, that I haven't ever got it perfect that I get that I get to do a redo every day. And the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous says that I get a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance. And by saying the maintenance, that that indicates I need to do something. The maintenance of my spiritual condition. I am so blessed to be an alcoholic. I am so blessed to be sponsored by this beautiful woman that is going to have 50 years of sobriety. I am so blessed to be able to sponsor women who help me. I'm a person left to my own devices, will to be depressed and be suicidal. But if I get the opportunity to work for it with another woman, I get a day of reprieve. And for that, I'm grateful. And I'm blessed to be able to walk this walk